0: Start a 30-day free trial at WalmartPlus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
1: In our culture, we know joy is a superpower. Like no one will, will doubt that one. What we need is to resurrect the power of sadness. And the power of it is, um, well, as we've said, that it's one of the most powerful ways that we have.
2: Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Bittersweet. I think it, it's uh, something that connects with both of us, specifically recently. We both had people close to us pass away. Mm
0: -hmm. And for
2: me, when my father passed a few months ago, it was a time of fully allowing myself to express my range of emotions, sadness, some resentment, some anger, some frustrations, but just a lot of sadness. But at the same time, I went back to my hometown, to my old house, and there was a lot of gratitude There's a lot of appreciation, gratitude, and joy. And I don't know if you experienced that when you had family members pass recently where there was both sadness and loss of joy and gratitude, but that's what I felt, and that's what I continue to feel.
1: Yeah, I feel like such a dizzying mix of emotions that you end up having. And for me, with both the loss of my father and my brother, the first emotion that I had in both cases was nausea, actually. And I had it for days. It really? didn't go away. Yeah, I think it was just like a profound, you know, feeling of like the ground is pulled out from oh. under you. And yeah, you know, just the sense of like the finality, you know, that which used to be will never mm. be again, like that kind of feeling. Yes. Like both, both times I had to just really absorb that first. Um, but I don't know, with my father in particular, I guess what took the place of that Pretty quickly in, um, my father was like, was a person who, he was a really bittersweet person in in his own way. And um, he really loved beauty. So Mm. he was like, he was a medical school professor and he worked like crazy long hours, but he would come home late at night and he would always have these things he was doing. Like he loved orchids, he just thought they were beautiful. Mm. So he built a, 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 um, a greenhouse full of orchids in wow. the basement. Really? You know? Yeah, and he would just, like, cultivate these orchids that the only people who would see them were, like, him and the family. Um, you know, and he loved the sound of the French language, so he would teach himself
2: how to speak French. He spoke French? He was fluent? or is, Yeah, well, some of it? I think
1: he was, like, mostly fluent wow. by the time he was done. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and, um, you know, he loved me. Mu- I, I, I love music so much, and I write about it, in bittersweet, and he was the one who really... Taught me to love it so much. He was like playing it for me from the time I was a little kid. So after he died, like every time I listen to music or see something that I know he would have appreciated, I don't know, like at the beginning it was like, oh my gosh, I wish so much that I could tell him this or share this with him. But then I was able to move to a place of like, well, he's still here with me in some way and I love these things because he loved them too. Mm-hmm. You know, whether whether we're sharing it for genetic reasons or because he taught it to me, like we're, I feel like there's still a togetherness there. Yeah. So that's been great to Do you feel more see.
2: connected after his passing than when he was here, spiritually? No. No?
1: No. I, th- I think it's more just that it's similar, that it hasn't, it hasn't changed as much as I thought it was going to change. Really? Yeah, it's something like that.
2: So there was sadness, but was there also a sweetness to it after this? after him passing?
1: I mean, I guess the sweetness is like, that it's made me take stock of all mm-hmm. the different, um, you know, things that he gave to me. Yes. You know, like everything I was just describing Appreciating to you. all these things. Yeah, like I, I really like live my life thinking all the time about beauty. I don't know why it matters so much to me, but it just really does. And I think it was really only after he died that I became as, intensely aware as i now am of Mm. how much that comes from him
2: wow what would you say was the biggest lesson that he taught you
1: well it was that but you know there was just a way that he lived his life that was like you know just do the right thing without any mess or fuss like he was not a person Mm. who cared about the spotlight one way Mm. or another so you know my first book quiet was about introverts and i think it's I mean, everyone in my family is introverted, so I got these lessons from everyone in the family. But I would look at my father and, like, everything that he did um, was because he was a quiet person who would, like, spend a lot of time, you know, poring over medical journals and mm-hmm. doing everything that he needed to do to be yeah. really good at what he did. Uh-huh. Um, and he didn't care about the spotlight. So then... so. I would go from that and then look around at the culture that is telling you, you know, you have to be the kind of person who wants to be in the spotlight all the time. Mm. And there was like this total mismatch between what I was observing with him and at home versus what the culture was saying. And that, I think, was what enabled me to question the cultural message that we were getting.
2: Uh, Did you have a lot of confusion growing up then when other people were about the spotlight and you were kind of happy being more isolated, I guess?
1: Oh yeah, totally. I mean, really? not so much, I, like, I always like to connect with people, but I like to connect one-on-one.
2: Not in um, big groups.
1: Yeah, not in big groups, and really, like, everything that I do now that's in the spotlight is always like, oh my God, I'm stepping so far outside my character, <laughs> and it's like in the service of work that I really love, so I do it, Yes. Um, but it's not really my core.
0: Right. Um,
1: so, yeah.
2: It's a constant process of working through that. You talk about being whole, when you're experiencing sorrow and pain and sadness and all these things, how does someone feel whole when there's so much pain in their life?
1: Well, because they're human, so humans have pain. That's yeah. part of what it is to be human. And like I, I define bittersweetness as being a deep recognition that joy and sorrow are forever paired in this world and that mm. everything in this world is impermanent. Um, you know, The people we love will not be here forever, but that there's something about Really intensely knowing that, that connects you to a kind of piercing you know, joy at how beautiful everything yes. is. So it's like, I don't think you can feel whole if you're doing you know, the sort of toxically positive thing of uh, um, always plastering a tearful smile on your mm-hmm. face and never talking about what's really happening. That's not wholeness. That's just like self-presentation. <laughs> it's a complete sure. different thing.
2: So how do how does someone get to a place of knowing their whole when all they feel is sadness and darkness?
1: Well, if you're only feeling sadness and darkness, you're probably going you're you're probably situated too far on the other extreme, and and you Mm. might be needing to figure out what's keeping you locked only in that place. Um, So I think it's a process of being open to all the emotions that we have and asking, you know, what what do each of these emotions tell us? What is this pain that I have? Tell me. Um, you know, like if you're experiencing, let's say, huge pain over a breakup, mm-hmm. um, that's telling you that you have that pain because you care about love and about relationships. So it's like the pain is pointing you directly to what do you care about most. Mm-hmm. And once you know what you care about most, you can lean further into that thing as opposed to what you could alternatively do is say, I'm feeling all this pain. So maybe I shouldn't have relationships anymore. You know, I keep having pain over and over again. So I better like reconsider this whole thing. That was me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was like always painful. Yeah. Right.
1: And did you ever think, well, maybe I just shouldn't do this at all?
2: Well, I was always like, okay, being in a relationship for a period of time is beautiful until it's not. And then eventually it turns into pain and and suffering.
0: Mm -hmm. Being
2: single is freeing and fun and peaceful until it's not when I feel a longing of intimacy and vulnerability and true deeper connection as opposed to kind of surface level connections. It was like, okay, I really craved intimacy and vulnerability, but every time I dove into that, I found myself suffering and in pain and and heartache.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was really figuring
2: out the process of getting back to wholeness and not It's almost like getting to a place where I didn't need it and I was so whole with myself and my own vulnerability and intimacy. And then being able to create a relationship based out of wholeness, not out of a wound or something that I was lacking. Mm -hmm,
0: And mm -hmm. that's where
2: it really started to shift for me.
1: Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So it sounds like, each time, You could either spend six months in the relationship and then get to the wall or six months <laughs> Single. in
2: singlehood
0: and then get, to, get to the to wall, wall. Yeah. of
2: loneliness. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: But I never figured out how to break through the wall until till recently. What would you say is the, the hardest emotion for you to overcome or learn how to, how to manage where it wasn't like holding you back in a big
0: way?
1: For me personally, um, the emotions of sorrow and longing that I talk about in the book have actually always been ones that I do manage pretty well Mm -hmm. um, and see the beauty in them. So, For me personally, the one that's been the most difficult, I would say, is anxiety. Really? Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. What type of anxiety? Well, you know. Social anxiety or just anxiousness around what?
1: I guess a little bit of both. You know, I just have a proneness to a kind of low-level anxiety Mm -hmm. so that, I don't know, if I have a lot of things that I need to get done, like until I'm
2: really on it, you feel a little stressed or anxious. Or, yeah, you know. yeah.
1: And then we were talking before um, uh, before we came online, you know, that all my life I had this historic, terrible public speaking anxiety. And that one I really did overcome, but it was a huge thing that overshadowed my life for decades, really. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, it was huge.
2: Um, would it cripple you or would it just, it would consume your energy a week or two getting ready for the speech?
1: It was a little bit of both. It was like before the speech, um, I wouldn't be able to eat for like a week. I wouldn't really sleep. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't
2: was, eat for a week. I couldn't eat for a week. Yeah, Holy cow. yeah. You're just no, like I would always on weight, some always. peanuts or something or some. Yeah, yeah. Just like the bare minimum. Um, just to stay alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Like <laughs> you
1: get hungry water. enough and then you
2: eat something. I mean in four days. I need to stay alive for this beach. Yeah, wow.
1: Yeah, and I could always like grit my teeth and get through the speech, but I don't think I did a great job, but I didn't do a terrible job either. Like I would just grit my teeth. All
2: your speeches, you always look incredible and like on it and you remember everything and you're (laughs) connecting with the audience. You look like you're a trained pro.
1: Well, I don't feel all those things anymore. Like I actually really did overcome this one.
0: Yes.
1: um, Which was not easy, but there's a magic way to overcome any kind of fear. I'm curious if you did this with your public speaking anxiety that you used to have. Mm -hmm. You know, the secret is just desensitization of, like, exposing yourself to the thing that you fear, but in really small doses. So that's what I did. You know, I went to seminars for people with public Mm -hmm. speaking anxiety, and I went to Toastmasters.
2: Toastmasters, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It worked for me.
1: It really works, because you have to practice in a supportive environment where it doesn't matter how much you screw up.
2: Toastmasters was the foundation for me, because I could not get in front of a group of five people, like I was telling you before, without... Forgetting everything. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, how am I gonna give a a two minute speech? Like, Mm -hmm. what what can I say that's interesting Mm -hmm. for two minutes? Five minutes felt like five hours. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And I remember going to Toastmasters for the first time. I was 24, I was terrified. And it was all these like, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old professionals in suits and had been speaking for decades. And I'm sitting there, this bum, just got done playing football trying to figure out what I was gonna do with my life in a t-shirt and a cut off t-shirt <laughs> mm-hmm. walking in like I'm not in the right place, but that was exactly where I needed to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember they said, you know, okay, your first speech is an icebreaker, five minutes long, Right. I if you remember right. this. And I go, I spent two weeks writing down, word for word, the speech and I was like, I have no idea what I'm gonna say for five minutes. And I entered the Toastmasters for the first time sweating, dripping sweat. I stood behind the podium because I was so afraid to get in front of people. So yeah, I needed the yeah, barrier.
0: Yeah,
2: And I had my papers up there and I literally looked down the whole time and just read like this to make sure I didn't miss anything. Flipped the page, read the whole time, and then at the end looked up. And I remember feeling like, man, I am such a loser. I'm so bad. I'm, I'm the worst person here. I'm gonna. They're gonna make fun of me. And obviously in Toastmasters, they can't make fun of you. They have to be supportive, right? Mm-hmm, Semi-encouraging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And give constructive feedback. And um, they were great, but they were like, you know, next time try to look up once. Right, you know, right, it's like,
0: right.
2: next time try to smile. <laughs> you know, next time <laughs> take a deep breath. And so, as opposed to small doses, I threw myself in every week, giving myself another speech. Mm-hmm, and I said, mm-hmm. every time I go, I need to get up for table topics, which I don't know if you remember.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which, which, was which were those Wait, are those the ones that are impromptu for table topics? Yes. Yeah. it was yeah. like
2: improv. Public speaking. And so I remember saying every time I have to do this because I don't wanna do it. Right, right. Anything that made me feel uncomfortable, I just said, okay, I have to get up and do this.
1: And did you ever like stay home? Like, it's, toast, it's Tuesday night, let's say, time no, to go to I, Toastmasters. I went or every time. Like, yeah.
2: Because I was, this is a period mm-hmm. of my life where I had no, nothing else going on. I was on my sister's couch, I was broke. And I was like, I wanna overcome this fear. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was like, I'm going every week I found a mentor from the Toastmasters who I'd meet with every week as well, at night, at mm-hmm. his place, mm-hmm. and go over my next speech, and I'd practice it with him. I was like, I'm coming.
1: the only person in the history of Toastmasters <laughs> yeah. who's ever done that. That's amazing. I was committed, because
2: I, I, I knew that this was crippling me. Yeah. This fear,
0: yeah. Yeah. this
2: inability to stand in front of a few people and say a message would cripple me for the rest of my life if I didn't overcome it. That was exactly
1: how I felt also. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I used to be a corporate lawyer, and I didn't care deep down, I think, that much about corporate law. So I was never invested enough to overcome the fear when I was doing that. Mm -hmm. But then when I became a writer and I cared so much about what I was doing, yeah, yeah, and I just felt like, oh, my gosh, you you can't nowadays do this profession without being able to go out and speak about it. So that was when I had the motivation to do what you were just describing. Of like, oh my God, I'm gonna show up every week even though I hate this. Um, You know, you just keep doing it. And uh, yeah, and I think people who don't have it don't understand what it's like. But the thing that you said about that you needed the podium, at the seminar that I went to for specifically people overcoming this fear, I didn't even know there was a thing
2: that was like overcoming fear public speaking seminar. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's in New York City. I think it's still going. It's run by this guy, Charles DiCagno. It's called, I think, the Public Speaking Center of New York. It's great. And he does exercises where it's like you'd stand in front of everybody with other people on either side of you, and all you'd have to do is answer some questions about yourself. But the idea of having the other people next to you is like, You're not alone in the spotlight. Oh, because just being on
2: stage is terrifying alone.
1: Right. So you're practicing being on stage, but you're not up there all alone. So that's like the whole little by little idea.
2: Do you answer a question and they just stand next to you and they're not not doing anything? Like it's just one person's answering at a time. It's not everyone's answering.
1: Right. It's just one person. So like, let's say it's my turn. Uh I'm like up there. I've got two people here, two people here. They're not saying anything. I'm the only one like on the hook. Sure. But, but, they're I know that, but they're there with you, and that mm. changes, oh, that, that, that like, ratchets it down a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, and then little by little, you know, you go up there on your own the next week.
2: Yeah, I think the thing I like about Toastmasters is they give you, like, prom- a new prompt every time you do a speech. Yeah, Okay, yeah. this one, let's use a prop. This one, use, you know, vocal variety. This one, you know, whatever. Say people's yeah. name or something, it's...
1: And what's great, also, like, I mean, we were talking a lot before we came online about uh-huh. vulnerability, and you know, to what extent does our culture allow it? I feel like a group like a Toastmasters, it, it's actually allowed to talk about that because
0: mm-hmm.
1: so many people are there for that purpose. Absolutely. Like, I had assumed when I first went that it was going to be all these, you know, amazing, confident speakers who are just there to put the cherry Get on and the yeah, icing yeah. on top. Yeah. But it wasn't, it was more like people who really needed to work on it. Mm -hmm. So I would say that was one of my first public spaces of really talking about these kinds of topics Mm. in an out there way.
2: And you practiced these topics there first before you took it out into the public, right? Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly.
2: On a scale of one to 10, when you wrote Quiet, when it came out there and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for the first year, let's say, on a scale of one to 10, how much self-love and confidence did you have after a year of accomplishing this kind of these accomplishments?
1: How much self love? How much okay. self love uh-huh. and
2: confidence, like lack of anxiety, did mm-hmm. you say you had when you were after the first year? And 10 being like you loved yourself the most and had no anxiety, uh-huh. 1 being you had uh, a ton of anxiety and you were questioning your like self love or you were. You were you weren't loving yourself to the full capacity.
0: Hmm.
1: Do you mean about like um, public appearances, or just in general? Internally, how just did you internally. Feel? Yeah. I think internally, I was okay. I, I I think I was feeling. I was feeling pretty darn.
0: You're feeling uh, good. Yeah. yeah. I was feeling pretty darn good. Yeah,
1: because I'd I'm wanted to yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd wanted to be a writer since I was four, and I had spent so many years off in this gigantic detour of being a lawyer mm. and then suddenly this dream I, I had always had had come true it's pretty amazing yeah and, and i mean you know this feeling of like when you get letters from people and they tell you what it might have meant to them and that's the best thing in the world i don't really know of anything better work-wise right so yeah i think it,
0: when did you it's feel
2: have you have you felt pretty consistent with those emotions over the last 10 years then mm-hmm. Or have there been times where you've doubted yourself in the last 10 years?
1: Oh no, I mean, I don't think you can help but sometimes doubt yourself. But I don't I don't know how to explain it. Like when it comes to writing on a deep fundamental level, I don't have that much doubt because I have so much of a sense of like mm. this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I don't always know that I'm actually gonna create the best thing, but I just know that the process of trying to create it.
2: You know how is, to do that. You're a pr- well,
1: yeah. I don't even know if I know how to do it. I just know that trying to do it is like, that's like the great gift of my life, mm. just working. You know, there's always like your vision of the shining amazing thing that you're actually gonna create, and you know you're never gonna actually reach that vision, or, or reach that goal, but just the act of trying to reach it, to me is the ultimate state. Yeah. So like when so I wrote bittersweet, it took me all these years. Once again, and yeah, like I have moments where I'm like tearing my hair out over how the heck do (laughs) I structure this chapter? I have no idea what to do. But then there's some deeper level where I feel like, well, you know, just the act of tearing my hair out over this is the right
2: pathway. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Place to start, and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
1: Every Stearns and Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now save up to 800 dollars on select adjustable mattress sets only. At sternsandfoster.com. Lesser savings may
3: apply. Sometimes it takes a different approach.
2: I'm not sure if you're close with her as well, but
1: I, I know yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's great. I remember having
2: her on, and she mentioned how she had this you know massive hit, e Pray Love, and then yeah. she was like, What do you do now, knowing that probably your best work or your most successful, your most work, successful work is yeah. behind you? Yeah. Right? It's kind of like, did you have this sense after quiet of okay, this eight-year run of New York Times bestseller list? Mm-hmm what, 10 people in the world have done that? I don't know, for that long. Did you have this thought of like, how could I make the next thing as good? Or am I going to be as good as my previous work? Or are people going to care as much?
1: Well, I will say, so Liz Gilbert gave the most beautiful TED Talk on that exact uh-huh, topic. Did you ever see that yes, one? It's, it's incredible. I watched that TED Talk like a million times that's before I ever gave mine because to me it was just it was amazing. Um so, yeah, so I thought about that a lot as I was writing the second book. Um, and I don't know, I, I, it's kind of a mix. So, yeah, there's a feeling of, like, all of that fear, mm-hmm. but there's also something that you and I talked about uh, earlier about the feeling of, like, well, if you connect with one person, that's, you know, that, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And so I felt like, well, okay, you you know, you want to be spending all your time, you want to be connecting with as many people as you possibly can. But I also think there's something about just one intense one-on-one connection that is worth it. Absolutely. So that's what I focus on. And yeah, you know, and so now I have new letters coming in from people who have read Bittersweet and they'll talk about it. And those to me are the mind-blowing moments.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough but because so many of us want to have these these accomplishments or you want to reach the same thing that you did in a previous thing. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is focusing more on the process is where you really get the joy and focusing on however many people consume it or engage with it and supporting them is really where the, the joy comes from.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's a kind of magic in it. Uh-huh. Like The reason I wanted to be a writer in the first place is because the feeling I would get reading a book of, like, the intense connection with the author. Mm -hmm. Um, And the author might not even be alive anymore at the moment you're having that connection, Uh and yet you're having it across the centuries. So that's what I'm in it for, you know, is trying to have those moments.
2: That's cool. I feel like uh, there isn't much wholeness in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much addiction to outside things to try to create wholeness, Mm -hmm. social media addiction, substances, whether it's alcohol or vaping or cigarettes or drugs, um, to sex addictions, to whatever it might be out there, where do you think the emptiness is coming from, and why are so many people seeking wholeness and outside distractions?
1: I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but... um I think our culture, we've been in trouble for a while because we, and I say a while, I'm like I'm actually dating this all the way back to the nineteenth century. Like I, I, I talk about this in the book. Since then, we started asking ourselves the question of like when something goes badly or well for someone? you know is that because of outside forces of good luck or bad luck, or is it about something inside the person? And the answer is probably really a mix of both, but, mm-hmm. but increasingly we started answering that question by saying it's all about you, like you know, you're know you totally determining everything. And from there we started categorizing people into born winners or born losers. Mm-hmm. And I think we, don't, we may not admit it, but that's really how we think about ourselves and each other.
2: Why do and, we categorize as born winners and losers?
1: Why? Because...
2: I mean, based on, like, you have a chapter about this in the book about winners and losers. Yeah. Is it about, like, your parents have a certain amount, so you're going to be a winner, or where you were born, or what type of winner and loser do you mean by that?
1: Oh, I mean, like, are you going to be, like, a winner at the game of life, you know? And and, and at different cultural moments, we define that differently. You know, nowadays, that looks like... Um, you know, Are you successful at work? Are you attractive? Are you, are you fit? Are you all these things? And, and not only are you all those things, but do you achieve all the, those things very effortlessly? Right. And the more we are looking at it, ourselves and each other that way, the more we feel like we have to present the emotions of a winner. So we have to always seem happy and everything's easy for us nothing's too vulnerable
2: nothing bothers me nothing
1: bothers me yeah you know like the the emotions that I talk about of sorrow and longing which I actually believe are some of the most powerful emotions that connect us with each other and that connect us kind of with the heavens and you know with with transcendence and with creativity we don't allow ourselves to go there because to express sorrow and longing is to put yourself kind of on the loser side of, Mm. of the emotional ledger and so we can't be whole because we don't allow ourselves to talk about pain even though that's part of life. Like it should be no big deal. It should be no big deal because of course everybody has it. Of course everyone has these emotions. But, but we're afraid of, of how we'll be seen.
2: Why do you think people are afraid to, to cry in front of others, to be vulnerable, to say things that they're ashamed of, uh, to say things that they're not proud of? Why do you think that is?
1: Um I think people are afraid of falling in status, you know, like falling in losing their status in the mm-hmm. eyes of others, you know, that you'll you'll topple a few ranks down on the social hierarchy mm. if you admit to those things. Even though, you know,
2: that's what also connects us to people that's too. That's what
1: connects us. That's the thing. That is what connects us. I mean, there's a reason that like all our religions, they talk about suffering, what to do with the problem of suffering. Um, and all our religions talk about the longing for a world that's more perfect and beautiful than this one. You know, like the longing for Eden, the longing for Mecca, the longing for Zion. It's because we we all come into this world with a sense of incompleteness and the desire to um, you know to articulate that and to reach a little closer for a place of, of real love and beauty. Mm-hmm. But we only allow ourselves to express that through, let's say, religion or through a few different pieces of art, let's say. We don't allow it in everyday chit-chat, even though that's what connects us.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because up until I turned 30,
0: Mm -hmm. I
2: would say I lived in a world where I had to put on a certain mask. Right, I had to project a strength, a confidence, uh, knowing I have the answers, whatever it might be. Uh, I had to... Project a lack of weakness is mm-hmm. what I felt like I needed to do mm-hmm. in order to belong, right. fit in, be accepted, and be loved. Yeah, And then I, I realized that was the thing that was holding me back from the deepest levels of connection, intimacy, love, and the full range of emotions, mm-hmm. I would say, in a conscious way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And when I started to kind of peel back the, the masks and, and be vulnerable in certain settings and seasons of life... Uh, I was able to release a lot of pain, release a lot of shame, release a lot of things that were holding me back to feel loved like I'd never felt before.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's a you know it's a work in progress of the last decade of figuring that out and unlearning. But it's been a beautiful journey, and I find that vulnerability brings me so much deeper connection to people. And I think you got to do it at the right time and season. Yeah, sure. You know, you know it's not just like an every moment you know regurgitating of vulnerability there's incredible power to vulnerability and able to, to connect with people when you reveal yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think when you do that you can create incredible things together as opposed to just coming from a surface level
1: right right and and you don't feel like you lost strength or power from doing that or, no, or you like like moments gained, of it.
2: i feel like i've let go of relationships that Maybe weren't in alignment to the vision I had now moving forward mm-hmm. and I've built a stronger deeper community of people that are willing to go to the same place mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's been a really cool thing
1: yeah you said an important thing as you were talking about that, which is you know you can't like be doing this all the time no. and and I do think it's important to say that right and and there's even data showing that you know in certain circumstances like if you're um, if you're let's say the boss, you're the person who's under you may not actually want you to be telling them everything that right. you might be going through. It might make right. them really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And you actually might, they might start to view you as a little bit less capable. So that's just one of those unfortunate realities that are also right. important to kind of lay out there. I, like, I, it, we need to get to a place where those realities live side by side mm-hmm. with being able to show up with all our different emotions. Yeah. Right.
2: And it's also, yeah, you don't have chronic vulnerability where it's like all day long, you're coming from a sad,
3: right. vulnerable,
2: hurt place. Right. It's like right. at some point you have to get into a different emotion right? Yeah. and have yeah. some courage and have some joy and express play and beauty and wonder and awe and love and connection. And maybe there's vulnerability in that and maybe there's not, but staying in kind of chronic sadness will keep you from a lot of the joys of life.
1: Yeah. I mean, we actually found, so um, in the book, I developed this bittersweet quiz that you can take to figure out like how prone you are to these states of bittersweetness. And I developed the quiz along with Scott Barry Kaufman, who I know is also a friend of yours. He's incredible. He's so great. Um, And David Yadin, a psychologist at Johns Hopkins. Uh And so we ran all these different correlations to figure out if you tend to be prone to this bittersweet kind of acceptance of joy and sorrow. What else goes along with that? And what we found, to your point, is that people who are high in the, in, in bittersweetness are also high in states of awe uh-huh.
2: and wonder
1: and spirituality. And When so, you have
2: sadness and joy. Yeah, yeah. When you yeah, can like, access both.
1: When you can access both. Because what it's really saying, if you can access both, is that you're kind of open and receptive to everything that the world brings,
0: mm. and you're
1: open and receptive to yourself and to all your different emotional states, as opposed to like only being in sadness, which is probably there's probably something about joy that you're afraid of or something like that, or if you're only willing to go to a state of cheerfulness, it's probably because you're afraid of where sadness can take you.
2: It's interesting, I had two interviews recently, one where I was on someone else's show and then someone who came on here, and both the individuals said that they hadn't cried in over a decade. Wow. wow. And they said this in the interview, and, I, and they both said, I acknowledge it's something I want to work on, right? It's <laughs> uh-huh. something, I know there's something there, Yeah. and I want to figure out what it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But if someone, and, and they're two great people, inspiring, yeah. you know, yeah. kind people,
0: yeah.
2: but both very driven,
0: mm-hmm. right? Driven
2: for growth, business results, mm-hmm. right? Where do you think that might come from if someone is hasn't tapped into it yet, or blocks the ability to feel the emotion of sadness, crying, tears, sorrow?
1: I mean, of course it's different for everyone, but I think for a lot of people there is, there's a fear of like, if I go to that place, I might never be able to come out again. Really? Yeah, I, I hear that from a lot of people. You know, I'll be like, I'll be stuck there.
2: Be sad forever. Yeah,
1: yeah, and of course, it doesn't have to be that way at all, but, but I think there is a fear that many people have. Or just like, yeah, like just not wanting to, not wanting to look at it.
2: Why I do you think, think it's so scary to look at sadness for some people?
1: Well, I mean, sadness doesn't feel good, right? It just by mm-hmm. its nature. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it feels good either. Um, so it's scary to look at anything that's mm-hmm. painful or it can be scary. I mean, I, it's different for different people. I actually find it scary, or, or let's say more difficult to not talk about things that are so plainly true and right in front of us. Um, to me, that would be the hard thing.
2: Yeah, to just stuff it or to sweep it under the rug.
1: Yeah, yeah. And not it's expose like, it. It's right over there. Yeah. So how can you not talk
2: about it? The elephant is right here. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah exactly. If but,
2: someone listening or watching hasn't been able to tap into that emotion, what do you think is a strategy or something they could do to start practicing getting there? and and feeling safe to go to those places without thinking they're gonna be trapped there?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I would start by looking for expressions of it that feel not so threatening to you. You know, and that might be music. A like, sad
2: song or? Yeah,
1: which is actually how I got into this whole topic in the first place was because I, I have this crazy, intense reaction to sad music of feeling not actually sad when I hear it, but more like completely connected to humanity because it feels like the music is expressing
0: mm.
1: something that all humans express and, mm-hmm. and then turning it into something beautiful, which is something humans have the capacity to do. You know, we, we take something, we look at something painful and we want to turn in the direction of meaning. You know, like after 9-11, suddenly all these people are signing up to be firefighters. Right. And after the pandemic, they're signing up for medical school. Like, why do we do that? Mm-hmm. We do that because we look at something painful, and there is this human impulse to transform it into meaning. So the strategy for people you're talking about would be to find expressions of human sorrow that also feel meaningful and uplifting. And they're there everywhere, you know, wh- whether it's in in music or art or or religion, um, I think sports is also mm-hmm. another great one. Absolutely. You know, like, like it's been really interesting, right? How since around, what, the, the 1970s or 80s, suddenly sports coverage became not only about studying the mechanics of the game and who won and who lost, but suddenly we're telling emotional stories, stories about all the players. Yes. You know, Their and, and,
2: childhood, and, their parents, or...
1: Yeah, yeah, the pain they had to overcome to get to where they are, all of it. So there... So I think for everybody, there are different portals or gateways that they can kind of go through to get this, to this state of a kind of elevated connection
0: mm-hmm.
1: with other people through, through accepting it all.
2: What is the thing that you think all people want the most, but they're also the most afraid of?
1: Love. Yeah, I think that's what everyone really wants the most. Like they want, they want a kind of perfect and unconditional love. And uh, Why are they afraid of love? Because they're afraid that they're not going to get the true love that they long for. You know, like you described it, right? Like mm-hmm. six months, you, get a, you got a great six months, you <laughs> got a great run, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then you hit that wall. Yes. And said—and probably that wall would come with a huge sense of like a crushing disappointment, mm, right? Like, yeah. like I had love and now I don't. Now
2: it's so. gone and how do I get back to it? Yeah, yeah. It's always look like, how do I get back to that?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that's what people are fundamentally longing for
2: how can people get to a place of fully loving themselves and feeling whole so that they have that unconditional love with themselves all the time and they don't need to seek it in someone else or something else
1: right right one of the important things that i think most people need to do is internalize their parent like the the parent you can pick your mother or father, whoever it was who most represented, like a deep love to you. Um, or if you didn't have such a parent, to, it, it doesn't have to be even someone you know. You know, it could be like the Virgin Mary. It could be like right. a representation of love. Um, and to really internalize that being, that essence, as part of you and carry it with you where you go. And be able to speak to yourself in the words of that nurturant parent figure. Um, especially when you need it most. And ultimately you'll need it less and less because it'll just become you know, absorbed into you. Mm-hmm. But
0: so what I, that I think like? really to, be,
1: like, to literally be able to speak to yourself the way a parent would speak to a kid who needs mm-hmm. encouragement, yeah. you know, like literally say the words. And, like if, if your parent figure um, speak, spoke to you or you wish they had spoken to you with specific terms of endearment, use those terms of endearment for yourself. You know, no one has to hear you do it, but do it in your mind or write it down. Speak to yourself that way until it becomes part of you.
0: Mm-hmm. How
2: long does it take for someone to get whole?
1: I think it depends where they're starting from, you know, and we're all on the journey to some degree um, forever.
2: Is there a so, process if someone's saying, I feel like I'm a half a person or I feel like I'm a fracture of who I should be? hmm what would you say is the process or the method they could take to start rebuilding and reshaping their identity or worth to where they feel, oh, I'm a whole person and I can feel a wide range of emotions and that's okay.
0: Yeah.
1: I'd say little by little by little, like just the way we were saying with the public speaking, you Uh know, to just take it like one step every single day, you know, whatever it is. And it's hard to speak in generalities because everyone's lack of wholeness looks very different. Um, but you know, like if your thing is A fear, you know, take one little step in the direction of like overcoming that fear, you know, or if your thing is not being able to open up to people, let's say, because you're afraid of what might happen. If you really open up,
3: you know, take one little step every day, Mm -hmm. have a little bit more openness. At Capelle University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella edu
2: I like that. It's interesting. When I when I started opening up about uh sexual trauma as a child, I remember I did it in a workshop first mm-hmm. to a group of people that I didn't really know, right?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. It was the scariest thing I'd ever done, but I was also like, Okay, I may never see these people again. Right. So right. who cares, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It took a lot of courage to do, and it was yeah. after two weekends of with these this group of people. But afterwards, I remember saying, "Oh shoot, okay, how do I tell this to my family or my best friends? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: You know, they may disown me, or they may not, they may judge me, or who knows?" And that's a scary thing to open up and say how I feel.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember talking to a therapist friend at the time. I said, "What do I do in this situation?" She said. Go to the person you feel like will receive this the most first. You feel like it's the most open. Yeah. Don't say this to the person who's going to be resistant to hearing it first. To the person you feel most open to build baby steps, just like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And ask uh, each family member, ask them this question first to see if it's appropriate to tell them. Ask them, is there anything that I could ever do or say that would make me not love you? or that, that would make you not love me.
0: Mm-hmm. So is there
2: anything I could ever do or say mm-hmm. that would make you not love me?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And ask them that first and see how they respond. And, and so I started asking my, my family members one by one this question and said, hey, I've got something I want to share, but is there anything, but I'm kind of nervous. I'm nervous to share with you. I feel really raw right now. And I want to know, is there anything that I could ever do or say in my life that would make you not love me? And each one of them were like, absolutely not. There's nothing, right? So and then it gave me permission one yeah. by one to build that courage to feel like I'm healing that relationship with myself and with them right. by revealing it. So I think that that approach it worked for me. So I think that's a good approach.
1: Yeah, and then you got to the point where you shared it with the public and you couldn't say to the public, is no. there anything no. that, that I could but do I that felt- would make you not love me? But it must be that, that by that point, you, you loved yourself enough that you didn't need to ask yeah. that question. I loved
2: myself enough and I knew that I had my friends and family there. Yeah, if, yeah. Even if the world hated me right, right, or, right, or thought I was a loser or something, I was like, okay, well at least I've got my friends and family.
0: Yeah. And I was
2: like, I need to do this um, because if it could help one person
0: yeah.
2: heal, it would be worth it. Mm-hmm, even if I mm-hmm. lose everything in my business, it would be worth it. And I also thought myself I have a responsibility because there's I, the more I started to study this, the more I realized that men everywhere were suffering. One in six men had been sexually abused. That's mm-hmm. the statistic in America, one in six men. It's one in, one in four for women, uh, which is obviously more, but women in general have a place to share and have a place to have support to mm-hmm. talk about it, whereas yeah. I didn't know any man who had talked about it. And so men were just suffering
0: right. and then using right. anger
2: as their way yeah. to share and express themselves.
0: Yeah.
2: I was thinking if men could have a place to share this pain, without anger or through anger in a healthy way, then men could heal and relationships could heal in the world as well. Right. And right. that, and I was like, if I don't do that, then I know I have the ability to potentially help someone and I'm, I'm not, not doing it. it because mm-hmm. I'm scared.
0: Right, right.
2: And then it was like this nagging thing for six months. It was like, you gotta do this.
1: And so, after six months, you kind of like... After six
2: months, o- then I... Went then over I, the cliff. I, <laughs> I remember I recorded a session. I, ha- I called Jonathan Fields. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I said, Jonathan, and I called Glennon Doyle. And I asked her for some advice as well on this. And I called Jonathan, and I said, listen, I th- I'm thinking about doing this, and will you interview me, or will you guide me talking about it on my show mm-hmm. so that I can get it out there because he's a very spiritual, grounded human being. Yeah. I was like, can you just create a safe space for me to talk about it and ask me questions and guide me because I was like I don't know how to do this on my own so I reached out to him he helped me and then uh, I reached out to Glenn and and then I waited another three months after I recorded it because I was just should I put this out there you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. Glennon Doyle helped me like write the article and the whole thing to put it out there because I didn't want it to go out in a way that was anything but in service right Right. I was like, I didn't want people to think it was some ulterior motive. I was just like, here's what I'm doing. I mm-hmm. want to help men mm-hmm. um, and create a space. But I like your approach, your method of like baby steps until you feel more whole and, and love yourself more and feel comfortable before you <coughs> take the bigger steps.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's little by little by little. Mm-hmm. Like that That really is how we change with everything. Right. Um, yeah, and to know, I mean... There's a psychologist at Stanford. Her name is Laura Carstensen, and um, and she's done all this research showing that when people are more in touch with life's fragility, like they've accepted it, that all these other things come with that state. You know, they become less angry. They have more gratitude. They start focusing on meaningful relationships mm-hmm. and activities of meaning. And um, and she first saw this in older people, because when you get to be you know, 70s or 80s, you like know that life is fragile, you know you only have a few years left at that point. Um, but then she started noticing that she was finding this also with younger people who had had life circumstances mm. that had made them have to face fragility. So I think like, just knowing that you know, there, there's, there's so much research out there, it's like all our wisdom traditions, they all tell us that going down this path takes you to a place of more meaning and more acceptance. Right. And you kind of have, just have to trust that.
2: There's a, I think the country of Bhutan, I don't know if you've heard of this, but they they think about their death five times a day.
0: Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. reflect
2: on it yeah. for a moment yeah. five times throughout the day. And I'm sure there's different countries or religions that do this. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And I think it's really powerful. If you create different moments in your day, uh, I think someone has a tattoo that says like, you know, you're gonna die. Yeah. And it's like just looking down at your wrist or looking at our, having a reminder an alarm come up five times a day that's like, this will all end. Yeah. Allows you to focus on perspective, allows you to feel deeper, allows you to have urgency in your life, allows you to say the things you need to say and not hold back, all these different things.
1: Yeah, I, I actually started doing that. Like, really? I, I, Yeah, because I was writing about that practice while I was working on, uh-huh. on Bittersweet. Um, And I thought, okay, you know, and I I read about all these people doing it, like the Stoics would do it, Mm -hmm. um, or like these grand generals um, in ancient Greece, they would win a battle and they would be like marching victoriously through the amphitheater and they would have a guy going along with them at the back of their horse saying, you're going to die, you're going to die, so that they would never lose sight of that. So I was like, okay, you know, what would this mean if I tried this? And led to so many just differences in how I spent my time. Like I noticed Mm. at the time I was doing it, my kids were pretty little and we had this bedtime ritual. And I was also really busy at that time. So truthfully, even though I loved the bedtime ritual, it was really hard for me not to be checking my phone. It would be like, you know, one of my sons would like look away for a minute and I'd be like, okay, did I get an email? And But then I started doing this practice and It completely changed it. Like, I I would literally say to myself, you know, you might not be here tomorrow. He might not be here tomorrow. We -hmm. have no idea. And I didn't feel freaked out or anything. It didn't make me anxious. It was more just like a reminder. Absolutely. And then I just started leaving the phone in another room, and it wasn't like an act of willpower. Mm -hmm. It was like my perspective just totally shifted.
2: Yeah, I think Marcus. there's a story about Marcus Aurelius that that, um, he would bring someone with him to walk through like the town because everyone was praising him
0: yeah.
2: and they brought someone with him to say that you're just a man like whispering in his ear constantly to remind him like not to get too high on yourself and think you're like this godlike because you can die just like everyone here
0: right right
2: um it's interesting right before you came in i was talking to some of uh the team uh and i was saying you know a couple of years ago, I looked up a stat. I was just like, I'm curious how many people die every day in the world. Mm-hmm. It's about 150,000 people die every day, on average. Okay. 150 to 180,000 on average in the world that they calculate. Might be a little more, a little, a little less, but I was like, 150,000 people died today, and we're not one of them. Mm-hmm. That's a blessing. You know, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's the ultimate gift. We're still yeah. here today. 150,000 people, that's, a, that's two football stadiums, you know, yeah. that yeah. didn't wake up, and we did. And so there's perspective there, and it's finding those moments, whether it's five times a day reminding yourself you're gonna die, or just mm-hmm. every day waking up and realizing you're not one of the 150,000 people that didn't wake up. Something to create that perspective, I think, will also create more sweetness in our life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, mm-hmm. when yeah. there
2: is, because like you said, there's going to be, you started writing this before the pandemic.
1: I did. But there's did. going to
2: be pain, loss, oh. sadness, heartache, suffering no matter what in life. There's going to be challenge. There's seasons of beautiful joy and everything's working out and other seasons where bam, everything hits you mm-hmm. at the same time it seems yeah. like.
0: Yeah.
2: And so when those moments happen, which they will for all of us, it sounds to me like we don't wanna suppress our emotions. We wanna have, we also don't wanna go down a, a dark hole of sadness for forever but we want to be able to experience the full range of emotions in a healthy way, is what I'm hearing you say,
1: yeah. and and you know, the flip side of what you just said is it's also the case that when we're going through times that do feel like they're like tilted towards the dark, there's also always joy there. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing. Like, if you're really in touch with joy and sorrow at all times, um like we were talking before about how I dedicated the book to Leonard Cohen, and the epigraph is, the line from his song "Anthem" that there's a, a crack in everything, that's where the light gets in. Mm-hmm. So to be able to remember that also, you know, even at the darkest times, there's always that light coming through, and it's always available to us. Yeah. So I think there's yeah.
2: you know what's the Japanese art.
1: Oh, wabi-sabi, philosophy. is or that what called? you're thinking
2: of? Or it's like, when something breaks and they put it back together with gold.
1: Oh, that's kintsugi. Kintsugi, yeah. yeah I don't like, know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. But yeah.
2: Kintsugi or, or something, yeah, where it's like, okay, here's something that broke. There's a lot of sadness. Let's actually make it more beautiful. Yeah. The cracks, by filling in the cracks. Exactly,
1: right? exactly. With
2: gold or whatever they do, this this paint, it was actually, oh, it's actually got this more beautiful character now. Yeah. Because it's not perfect.
1: Right. And There I, is
2: fragility I, to it.
1: Yeah, right. and that's what I would say to people who are like, afraid that if they go in that direction, they'll never be able to come out again. That's not actually what all these wisdom tra- traditions teach. They teach the opposite,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know that, that there's always a way to, to turn in the direction of beauty.
2: Yes. So. When I went to, uh, I studied meditation at different places, but when I went to India to study for a few weeks, they talked about, um, this place I went to talked about there's two states of being. Mm -hmm. Uh, a suffering state, Mm -hmm. or an energetic state of suffering, Mm -hmm. or a beautiful state, a state of beauty, which Mm -hmm. could be gratitude, joy, love, peace, you know, all these different things, where suffering could be, you know, sadness, anger, resentment, fear, Mm -hmm. anxiety, suffering state. And they taught that the best way to get out of suffering and into a beautiful state is to stop thinking of self in terms of like oh why is this happening to me and actually putting attention on service Mm
0: -hmm. giving
2: um, not on why am i not getting something that i want Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. creating that in the world and giving and removing from suffering into a beautiful state by your action of giving and service so it's something i think that when we are I've been curled up in a ball many times in my, in my bed in my, my early 20s and my teens because I didn't know how to manage emotions. Mm-hmm. And I was always focused on me. Why is this happening to me? Why did I not get what I wanted? Why did this person hurt me? Why did, you know, why this to me? Mm-hmm. And I would just sit there and be sad. And I would go down a dark hole for many days sometimes. And it wasn't until I said, okay, this sucks, this is unfortunate, but how can I use this for good? that's when yeah. I was able to get out of
1: it. Yeah, I mean, that's what your whole life has been. And yeah. I bet you every single person who you've admired mm-hmm. or used as role models for yourself and for others along the way, I bet you every single one of them that the narrative, the under, overarching narrative is that they took some kind of pain and Absolutely. turned it into something else. Absolutely. And that's like the it's ultimate inspiring. goal. That's the ultimate goal. Like yeah. I say, like whatever pain you can't get rid of, make that your creative offering. Ooh. That's the Give me an example. Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, okay, so like, there's one story I tell in the book about Maya Angelou. So she, she, she had such a harrowing childhood. You know, like, her, she and her brother were effectively abandoned by their parents who sent them off to live with relatives, and she faced terrible racism, and she was raped when she was eight years old, like, terrible stuff. And, like, it was so bad that she, she literally stopped talking four or five years. She did not speak to anybody um, besides her brother. Five years, not a word. Mm. And then she, um, and then when she's like 13 years old, and she writes about this in her memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Um, when she's about 13, this woman takes her under her wing and starts reading to her from A Tale of Two Cities. and And Angela, uh, like, recalls how the words sounded like music Mm. in the way that this woman said them and and there's also this amazing detail that she describes about the woman she says like she was this very lovely elegantly turned out person very gracious she said she often smiled but she never laughed so it was kind of like this allusion to the fact that the woman herself had been through whatever it Mm. was um and the woman succeeds in opening up the young maya and so she then starts putting forth her own, you know, memoirs and plays and poetry and everything that she did. And, um, and there's an amazing twist to the story, which is that 30 years later, there was this other little girl who grew up in a situation that was almost like uncannily like the young Maya's. And she reads Maya's memoir, Angela's memoir. Um, and she says, oh my gosh, that's me. And, and she can't believe that there's another person out there who's had her story and transformed it into something else. And that little girl who was reading that memoir was Oprah. Wow,
2: that's Um, cool.
1: Yeah, and so that's just like one example, but I think there's almost no heroic figure that we admire where if you scratch the surface of your life, you wouldn't find some version of that same story
0: mm-hmm. like that's
1: really the we hear about the hero's journey yes. that's what the hero's journey really is
2: wow yeah someone once said that in business you're perfectly suited to serve the struggling person you once were and overcame
1: oh wow that's good you know what i mean if it's yeah, like yeah uh, totally
2: what do i need to do in a business well where were you struggling five to ten years ago that right. you overcame right Help someone overcome that struggle. Mm-hmm, you're you're mm-hmm. an expert in that thing.
0: Yeah. Even if yeah. you can only
2: help a few people, it's like get started doing the thing that you struggled with the most and overcame. Yeah. That's why you see people in the fitness industry. It's like I lost a hundred pounds. Let me show you how right, I right. I suffered for twenty years with this, and let me show you how to do this for other people that were suffering. Right. It's like
1: I'm glad you're using the business example because some, you know when I say like. Um, whatever pain you can't get rid of, mm-hmm. make that your creative offering. I'm using that word creative like really broadly. You know, it can right. mean anything. It just means right. like uh, you know, yeah, you bringing something into being. You could do
2: painting, you could do whatever it might be.
1: Right, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be, uh-huh. you know, being a fitness instructor or whatever uh-huh. it is for you. Yeah,
2: yeah, I think that's what it is because there's a lot of people that, you know, uh, struggle with being overweight or obese or something and then they finally overcome the challenge mm-hmm. and get in shape and get healthy Yeah, and get back a life maybe they wanted or get their self-confidence back. And so that person is perfectly suited to serve other people that were in that situation they once were in.
0: Yes, that And is to right. be a teacher
2: yeah. and to give back yeah. and however they want to create that information. You know, uh, my Angelou did it through a memoir and books and you could do this through a course or you know, whatever it might be.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We're teaching one-to-one or classes or anything like that. So I think that's what um, what people can do, but I love that story. You know, no one relates to the person that has not over ha, had some pain in their life. It's hard to relate to someone that's perfect.
1: Well, because we know it's not true. Right. It's just there's no way that it's true, and so then you're not relating to a real person. That's what yeah. it really is. It's not only that they're too successful and therefore like on a whole other plane from us. It's also that like we sense that there's something not mm, authentic
2: yeah, about it's it. Yeah, off. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the difference between perfect love and unconditional love?
1: Ah. Um, well, I don't know the answer to that exactly. I think that we, I think that perfect, call it perfect love, call it unconditional love. I think it's something that um, exists. It's a kind of like, we can get closer and closer and closer to that state that we yearn for. I don't think we get there fully in this lifetime. Mm. And that accepting that is actually part of what helps us to have great and enriching love relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, I I talk about this a lot in the book, the like the longing for the state in which the longing for that state of perfect union, you know, perfect everything, perfect beauty, all of it we're born to exist in that state of longing. And we know from all the wisdom traditions that to dive into that longing brings us ever closer to the thing that we're longing for, even if we don't ever fully, fully reach it. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we accept that, the healthier our love relationships can be, because Mm -hmm. otherwise it can be like what you were describing, where you're like, you know, I just spent the first six months with someone, and we were in the Garden of Eden, um, but somehow we got kicked now out.
2: Now we're in hell. Now we're in hell. And, yes. know, in hell. <laughs> and yeah. how do we get back to Eden, yeah.
1: Exactly. Because you ate
2: the apple. Ah, don't <laughs> eat the <laughs> apple.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. And, and you know, it might just be that you were with the wrong person, right, um, right? Exactly. But it can also be that, like, it's not really our state in this world mm-hmm. to exist in Eden forever, and if we expect that then that can prevent us from um, having from work from building the healthy yeah. relationships that we're seeking.
2: And that's probably why when we hear a song that is so perfect, or we see a piece of art that just looks almost perfect, or we see a a perfect catch on a football game and mm-hmm. you're like, that's when we feel awe
1: exactly because you're like oh i just saw eden a moment of
2: perfection yeah
1: exactly right? exactly
2: and, or you have this night with your partner where it's just like everything is beautiful and every synchronicities and the connection and the intimacy it's like this perfect night you're like oh, this awe, yeah, Right. it's the it is awe. it's the bittersweet and then the next day you wake up and you're like you smell their bad breath or something <laughs> right you're like oh you know it's like yeah this bittersweet experience Right. searching and yearning for the the perfect, the unconditional, but knowing there's only moments of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And to know that there are only moments of it is actually, like, it's incredibly empowering. Like, it makes mm-hmm. you love those moments when you yeah. have them, um, you know, and not, like, despair when you don't have them, because that's the nature of existence.
2: Yes.
3: Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath Learning Format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.
2: Would you say that you unconditionally love yourself?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think it depends on what you mean by it, because I feel like there's a sense in which I do, but if you listened to the, like my, uh, (laughs) my inner dialogue sometimes, you know, I have the same issue that I think many people do of like, um,
2: what do you say to yourself?
1: Oh, gosh, I don't know, you know, like, like I just said a stupid thing or I didn't say the right thing or, you know, I should have done this or I should have done that. And it's hard for me to tell where that, where those voices come from. It doesn't really feel like it's me talking to me. It more feels like hmm. um, it's like my perception of what some outer force would say, and then I'm grappling with it. Which is why I say, like, underneath it, I kind of feel like I'm on my own side, and yet those voices are coming from somewhere. How Does that do you, make sense?
2: Yeah. I hear you there. How, how do you think it would t- what would it take for us as humans to stop judging ourselves, but also have humility and have constructive feedback in a healthy way for ourselves to improve and grow and expand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not think we have it all figured out? Right. How, mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we get to that place where we're not internally judging, shaming, making wrong,
0: mm-hmm. doubting, yeah.
2: but also looking to improve, and looking to grow? in a healthy way.
1: Right, right. So
2: it's more unconditional love.
1: Yeah, so I don't think that um, there's anything about increasing our self-love that brings with it arrogance or you know disinterest and growth or anything like that. I, I think the fact that we tend to see those things as being connected is a huge misunderstanding.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: I, it's actually the opposite. I think the more you have true self-love, the more you would be quite humble and quite interested in growing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, There's a a technique and a practice that I think is really useful, um, of metta, I don't know if, uh, loving kindness meditation. Okay. Um, I, I actually write about this. I studied it with Sharon Salzberg, who's one of our great meditation teachers, and it's basically this practice where you wish yourself and all the people in your life, including your easiest relationships, the and most your most, most difficult relationships. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then you wish everyone on earth, and you wish you know, the guy at the gas pump, you wish everybody who you're passing. Like step by step by step, you're wishing everybody love, you're wishing them well-being, you're
0: wishing mm-hmm. them peace
1: and freedom from suffering and all of it. And it is really transformative when you do it. It's like, it feels a little bit formulaic at the time, but I've noticed whenever I do it, then I like go out into the world and I'm just much more likely to beam into that mm-hmm. state of mind.
2: Yeah, what is that? And, Prayer or meditation or a mantra? Is it a?
1: It's a meditation. Meditation. Yeah, I'm actually putting a version of it up on my website for people who are curious. Like I have my own my own version of it that I've. So you developed. make your own version. You, you know. can. I mean, yeah. there's a there's a traditional, uh, meta version. How, how's it go? Um, here, wait. I'll give you because yeah. I always do my own stuff. But um, I'll tell you the traditional one. Okay. So the interesting thing is, so Sharon Salzberg, who taught this to me, she first studied this in Burma, and the phrases that she was given to repeat were, um, may I be free from danger, may I be free from mental suffering, may I be free from physical suffering, may I have ease of well-being. But what's interesting is, she started teaching this in the States, and all these people were coming up to her and saying, I don't really like using these negative words like danger and suffering and all that. Mm -hmm. So for Americans, she had to turn it around, yeah. 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 And she made it like, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease.
2: Mm, That's cool. You know, you
1: you started out asking about self-love and what's interesting is like traditionally with this practice, you would start by wishing all these good things to yourself before you move on to others. But a lot of Americans have trouble with that. They feel uncomfortable wishing these things to themselves first. Why is that? There's something in us that makes us feel like it's selfish and wrong to be doing that, to be... I I think it's because of the way that we confuse self-love with arrogance. Mm -hmm. Even though the opposite is what's true.
2: What is the difference between self-love and arrogance?
1: Well, self-love is just wishing yourself well. Arrogance is thinking that you're better than other people. Um, that you don't have to care so much about other people. You know, it's holding them with a degree of contempt. Um, whereas this is much more of a, a practice of acceptance of yourself and everyone around you. It's really think, different.
2: Yeah, and I think growing up, uh, when I grew mm. up in the 80s, especially in the Midwest and the sports culture, let's say mm-hmm. it was all about winning,
0: right? Yeah, and yeah. you're
2: praised for when you won. Yeah. I wasn't praised for getting a third place trophy or a 10th place trophy, I guess like kids are now. It's like everyone's celebrated for whatever place, which Mm -hmm. I get the celebrating the participation, but it was more about, I wish it was more about the effort that people were celebrating, but back then it was like, you either win or you're a loser if you're second.
0: Mm -hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. doesn't
2: matter how great your performance was, you lost.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: So everything was focused on doing whatever it took to win. And so, my sophomore year in college, I broke the world record for the most receiving yards in a single game. So no one in the history of the world Uh had ever done something that I did.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. 418 receiving yards in one game. It was more than in any college football game, professional game, high school. And we lost the game. Uh We lost by Uh like a few points at the end. And I was the last one out of the locker room, beating myself up, focused on what I could have done better. Right. I didn't even know that I actually broke the record until after I got out of the shower. I remember my coach coming in, I was the last one to get out of the shower, and he told me this, and he was kind of like congratulating me, but we also just lost, so it yeah. was hard to yeah. celebrate, and I was yeah. like so confused, because I was yeah. like, man, my effort was so good, but it wasn't good enough to win. But I wasn't even willing to celebrate the effort at that time, because I was so focused on like, you either win or you're a loser, and you're not worthy. Of love.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's kind of like
2: where my feelings were around. And so I think it's hard to unwind that.
1: I know. And I totally get it. I mean yeah. both of my sons play sports and I've seen that exact same thing. Like they'll come off the soccer field and yeah, I'll score be like, three
2: goals and you lose, but you're like, Yeah, oh.
1: and I'll be like, Oh well, you know, I know you lost, but like those goals were really great, just so you know. And they'll be like, Who cares? We mm-hmm. lost the game. But I don't know, at the same time, I think that there's a way I, I don't think it's wrong to want to win or to Absolutely, have things yeah. like sports where there's a winner and a loser. Like, I think that's completely consistent with being able to say that the goal is unconditional self-love, even while you might be bummed that you yeah, lost the game. Of like, course. But I think we think those, those two things are inconsistent because we think, no, if you lost the game, it means you're a loser, as opposed to you're a human who sometimes wins and sometimes loses.
2: How do we reshape that thought process if we, don't get the job we wanted, if we don't get the relationship we wanted, or the person says no to us and rejects us, or we get fired or whatever, we don't get the deal we want, we lose the game. How do we keep our identity whole and loving and full and not tied to losing or failing at the external things?
1: It's that just something happened. And maybe you did put in enough effort and it happened anyway. Maybe you didn't put in enough Mm -hmm. effort and you're going to put in more next time. But I think the real mind shift is that we see it as that when we're winning, when things are going well, that's the main road. And when we lose, that's like a detour off the main road. And now we Mm. feel like, oh my gosh, we're stuck in a detour in the hinterlands over here, as opposed (laughs) to thinking it's all the main road. It's all the main road. This is just part of what happens in life. And I'm gonna next time put in all the effort and all that stuff, but not see it as like this fundamentally unnatural state that casts us out into the realm of losers. Mm -hmm. That's the the use of the term loser has risen astronomically in recent decades. Mm. And that's what we've got to figure out how to get away from. Right. You can lose without being a loser. That's really what I'm saying. Mm
2: -hmm. What is the superpower that an introvert has that an extrovert doesn't have?
1: There's a, there's a power in being able to spend time in solitude. I mean, like we know with Huge creativity, power. for example, you can't really do great creative work without quite a bit of time spent alone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like in our culture, we only focus on the part of creativity that's about exchanging ideas or going out on stage and sharing your ideas and that's all good. Um, but you also need the time alone which for introverts comes much more easily.
0: Right.
1: And, and then like when it comes to leadership, there's a way in which introverts lead where they're much more apt to be asking questions of the people around them and soliciting ideas and then like taking the best of those ideas and running with them. Whereas for an extrovert, um, what comes more easily is like inspiring and rousing the troops and all that. Um, But they can be so dominant or just irrepressible that they're only getting their own ideas and they're not getting in as many inputs from others.
2: So Yeah. yeah. And what is the superpower to feeling sadness over joy?
1: Well, I would call it the superpower of feeling sadness and joy. Both.
2: Just one is not a superpower.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just one. It's more of that. In our culture, we know joy is a superpower. Like, no one will will doubt that one. What we need is to resurrect the power of sadness. And the power of it is, um, well, as we've said, that it's one of the most powerful ways that we have of of connecting with each other to be able to really share and really open up. Um, Humans are evolutionarily designed to do this. Like, if I see you or someone um, struggling, we all have a vagus nerve. It's the biggest bundle of nerves in our bodies and it activates when we see somebody else suffering. We, we wanna help them. We, we wanna want to to help reach them reach
2: out, we wanna connect, we wanna yeah. lend a hand.
1: Yeah, and this is part of who we are evolutionarily. Um, because we were designed to be able to care for vulnerable infants and then we mm. we like, you know, came up with this capacity to, to do that in general. So the power to connect, the power to be creative, like creativity In its essence, for most people, it's like it's trying to turn pain into something else or it's trying to get closer to that perfect world, you know, that you were talking about, like when you see the perfect jump shot or whatever it is. You're like trying to get closer. So you build something new Um, and it's connected to transcendence and to to wonder and awe,
0: all of it.
2: How does an introvert let go of the need to people please and get back to a place of saying, creating boundaries and saying no so that they can actually stay charged throughout the day as opposed to lose their charge.
1: So I'll tell you like the mind shift and then I'll tell you like the concrete practice. The mind shift is you have to feel entitled to be who you are. Um, I cannot tell you how many letters I get from people (laughs) who are like, it's really amazing, they're like, you know, as soon as I started feeling like I was, o- not just okay, but powerful in who I was, the more successful I became in the outward-facing world. Mm. You know, like at a job interview or something. Because you're, you're starting to show up as yourself instead of showing up trying to be somebody else. And in terms of the concrete tip there, <laughs> um, introverts desperately need to be scheduling in recharge time where Ooh. they get to be alone. For some people, it's taking a nap, or for somebody else, it's taking a walk, like whatever it is. You should be putting that into your calendar as many times a day as you need it and honoring that commitment just as fiercely as you would a commitment to a client or colleagues or whomever. And if you have trouble doing that because you feel guilty about it, just remind yourself that you're going to be so much more present for everyone else if you've taken that time for yourself.
2: How does social media play in with introverts? Does if you're experiencing all these micro doses of interactions with people, but you're mm-hmm. not physically around them, yeah. does that drain you just as much? If you're on your screen interacting, conversations all day, or does it not it feel kind the of same? It
1: goes both ways. It doesn't feel the same on the one hand, <laughs> right? Because it's like this it's still just this one source of inputs as opposed to, you know, a gazillion that you uh-huh. might feel at a party. But on the other hand, you know, as you said, social media is just like, it's really self-presentation media. And I think that's mm-hmm. draining to the soul for everybody.
2: Mm-hmm. It's learning to manage that. Yeah. What else do we need to know about <laughs> Bittersweet that we can take with us today?
1: Um, gosh, I would say, so I spent all these years studying all these what all these traditions have to say about this. And, and the one thing that they all have in common is the idea that when we're faced with a pain, there's kind of two roads, you know, and one road is to leave the pain unattended to you in one way or another, and then you end up taking it out on yourself and it shows up as depression or it shows up as severe anxiety or, um, or you're taking it out on somebody else and it shows up as abuse or passive aggression or addiction or you know, whatever it is. And then the other road is to take a pain and as we said, to try to turn it into something else. Yeah. You know, not, not to minimize what it is, but to turn in the direction of meaning
0: because
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's what we are born to do.
2: Yeah. I love this, I'm excited about this. I want people to get a copy, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. I think in a world where a lot of us feel empty, this is exactly what we need to start diving into to feel more whole Mm -hmm. and to create the practice of loving yourself with the full range of emotions. Not stuffing, not masking, not hiding, and not staying trapped in one emotion as well. So you feel like you can't get out of it. So I want people to get the book and also check out Quiet for all the introverts Mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, That's gonna be your, your you know, essentially your introvert's Bible, right? It's like, <laughs> it's the go-to on how to know that you're not alone and how to know that there's um, there's a lot of power within being an introvert mm-hmm. and having quiet. You know, like you said, I get my best ideas when I'm alone, you know, when I'm not with other people.
1: Oh, like, that's interesting. I so guess, even for you, you do too.
2: It's like when I'm mm-hmm. when I'm on a run or on a walk yeah. or when I'm on the drive and I don't have music on, right? When yeah. It's like when yeah. I'm, In silence, I might be in motion. Right. Yeah, motion
1: helps for everyone. But I'm
2: in silence. I'm not listening to anything, you Mm -hmm, know? And mm -hmm. I'm listening to the inner voice. Yeah. That's when all the things are connecting in the brain and like the dots are coming. Oh, this idea comes. Yeah. When that happens. So I actually want, I call it strategic messing (laughs) around time, (laughs) it's scheduling in time to just play. Just yeah. to do nothing, to play, throw a frisbee, just whatever it might be, or to go for a walk. Giving myself that time is where I get some of my best ideas. Because if I'm always productive and doing, 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 that I'm, right. I'm not being and I'm not listening.
1: And you're not generating. Yeah, I'm not generating
2: yeah. from a place of a space, right? It's yeah. like when you're always creating, it's hard to come up with the next beautiful idea.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I love that. Yeah. You know, the... Um, the amazing psychologist, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, he did this study of creativity, and he found that extroverted teenagers who had a lot of creative talent in one domain or another, that they sometimes wouldn't realize all their talent because part of the process requires solitude. And for the teens who just disliked solitude so much, they didn't have the space that they needed to develop. Yeah. So I, I worry about that sometimes with our schools because everything is now so group focused in schools. Mm, it's and all I think collaboration
2: it's, group focused, right? It's yeah. all
1: collaboration group focused, which like that's hard on the introverts in one way, but I worry about the extroverted kids who aren't ever getting the training that they need to realize that they can actually thrive in solitude too.
2: It's interesting because I was so afraid to be alone in growing up mm-hmm. and I needed to be around people. And because when I was early growing up, I didn't have friends. And so I felt worthless and a loser because no one would be friends with me. And then when I had friends, I didn't wanna lose the friends. Yeah. So I was like, Let me spend, let's, what are you guys doing? Let's do a play, let's do this, right? And I mm-hmm. always wanna be around people. And when I got into my 20s, I remember thinking to myself, I don't like the way this feels.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Needing to always be around people to feel like I'm good enough.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because of the word needing mm-hmm. in that sentence. Yeah, it was yeah. like I needed
2: like, yeah. in order to feel loved or accepted. Mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, I really don't accept myself yet fully
0: mm-hmm. if I'm
2: needing other people to accept me to feel good. And so I gave myself a challenge for a couple of years where I was like, I'm going to go out with myself alone a few times a week. I'm going to go to lunch or dinner. I'm going to go to movies alone, which I would have never gone oh. to the movie alone, never oh. would have gone to lunch by myself would have felt too intimidated or too like, like I'm a loser just sitting here alone. Mm-hmm. And I did this for a few years and I got so, in a weird way I fell in love with myself for the first time by just appreciating my own company. Mm-hmm. Sitting there and just enjoying lunch and just being able to observe people and say hi to people but just being able to be there, go to a movie by myself,
0: mm-hmm.
2: have some popcorn alone and just laugh or be a part of the movie experience alone.
0: Yeah.
2: And it was one of the greatest gifts I gave myself because I no longer needed to spend time with people just to be around them. I could appreciate my alone time. And I really value that now, whereas before I didn't because I couldn't accept myself.
1: Yeah, no, it sounds like an aspect of Uh self-love for you. Yeah. yeah.
2: What's it called when you're in between, extrovert and introvert?
1: Oh yeah, that's a good question. It's called an ambivert.
2: Ambivert, yeah. 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 Because I love being around people, Uh but I also love my alone time.
1: Right, right.
2: Like, I wanna go hang out with friends and do activities, but then I'm like, I just wanna be alone for like a half day,
1: Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah.
2: Susan, I'm so grateful that you decided to put this book out, and I really wanna acknowledge you for your mission to serve people, using your gift, using your talent to create a beautiful piece of art to share with others on how they can understand themselves better, how they can heal, how they can grow, how they can connect with others. Um, these last couple books are really inspiring and impacting a lot of people. So I'm grateful for your knowledge, I'm grateful for your lessons, the challenges you face in your life to make this from that space so that others can understand their lives. It's really cool what you've created and uh, I hope this continues to do well for you with Bittersweet because a lot of people feel empty and this can help them feel whole. So I'm I'm really grateful for you. Well,
1: thank you so, so much, Louis. It's like such a, joy and an honor to be here with you. I really yeah. appreciate it.
2: I'm really grateful. I've got a couple final questions, Oh um, sure, but I want to make sure people get the book. I want them to go to susankane.net and take your quiz. You've got a quiz on there. You've got a newsletter on there. You've got a course. Uh, what's the course about?
1: It's actually, it's a bittersweet course. And what's cool about it is that it's, it's done through texts that we send to your phone, either okay. through your, tech, your SMS or through WhatsApp. Nice. And so it's like every morning you wake up and there's an audio message from me, well, a cool. written message, or all different things. Yeah, that's so it's cool. just like little bursts that you wake up to every morning.
2: What's it gonna help people and with when it, they go to the course?
1: It's a way of, uh, of learning to live life with joy and sorrow and then to come out in a more whole
2: way at the okay. end of it. So if we go to <laughs> susankane.net, they can get all the information there. That's right. The book, make sure you guys get a few copies. This is a question I ask everyone towards the end. It's a hypothetical question called the three truths. Mm -hmm. So imagine you get to live as long as you want to live, but it's Mm -hmm. your last day. You get to accomplish everything you want to accomplish, experience all the sorrows and joys of life, the awe, the beautiful art, music, all these things. But for whatever reason, you've got to take all of your work with you to the next place. So no one has access to your books. This interview is gone, it's a hypothetical mm. scenario. Wow, okay. Every interview you've ever had is gone, every article, everything. For whatever reason, it goes somewhere else. But you get to leave behind three lessons that you've learned. Mm. Three truths mm. that you would share with the world, and this is all we have mm-hmm. of your message. Wow. What would you say would be those three truths for you?
1: Okay, so I guess one of them is the one that I already said before, but it's the true answer to the question. It's um, the idea of, Whatever pain you can't get rid of, make that your offering. Make that your creative offering. And then another one, and this comes from, this is an idea from Quiet. Well, actually, this idea is really about both books, I would say. It's that I believe there are many different kinds of superpowers on offer in this world. You know, we know this from the movies, right? There's, like, lightsabers, Mm -hmm. and there's wizards, and (laughs) and there's people who climb up with spider feet or yeah, whatever they yeah. do. Um, <laughs> spider Man. So, yeah, Spider-Man, yeah <laughs> exactly. And and each of us is given different kinds of superpowers. Like mm-hmm. you know, you only get the lightsaber, you only get the wizard hat, you don't get them all. So a lot of the key to life is figuring out what are the superpowers that you have been granted mm-hmm. and using those. And using them well.
2: Amen to that. Yeah. And not
1: thinking, well, I have to have some other superpower. Like, what's yours?
2: I like that. What's yours? Okay. That's number two.
1: That's number two. And the third one, okay, this is a little bit, this isn't like a pithy one sentence one, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm never good at the pith. Okay. (laughs) So one of the lessons that I learned from doing all the bittersweet research It comes from the Kabbalah, which is the mystical side of Judaism, and it's this parable. And the parable basically says that all of creation originally was one intact divine vessel of light, but then the vessel shattered, and the world we're living in now is the world after the breakage. Mm. But the shards of that vessel are scattered everywhere around us still, and so what we can do in this broken world is everybody's gonna notice different shards of light. And what we can do is bend down and pick them up whenever we notice them. And I love this because to me, this is like the answer of how to live in a world that contains like so much tragedy and evil over here and then so much joy and love and beauty over there. And like it's, it, it can be overwhelming to think, yeah. how, to, how do I live with both of those? And I feel like this parable is giving us the answer. It's like, okay, don't expect it to be perfect. It's never gonna be utopia, but always you have the power to be bending down and picking up the light. Mm-hmm. Always.
0: Yeah,
2: that's beautiful. That's a great three truths. Um, final question. Okay. What's your definition of greatness?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know, the answer that just came into my head is love. and like self-love and love of others, that's what I would say.
2: Matter, And now it's time to go out there and do something great.
3: At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, and bye